I'm going to have you turn to Isaiah 36, please. Isaiah 36. You need to get in your own Bible. I don't have it on the screen today, like usual, because we're going to read most of two chapters. Isaiah 36. This story from Isaiah 36 is uh, about Judah being attacked by Assyria, and it is the only story that's in the Old Testament three times. And that is quite significant because God says that a thing is established by two or three witnesses. So when the Bible repeats a story or repeats a statement, God is establishing this as very important. And then this is the only one that's repeated three times. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and Isaiah is this story. There are some in the New Testament that are repeated four times. Jesus' baptism and the feeding of the 5,000 and the crucifixion, resurrection. That's it. Those are the only things that are repeated four times in all of the Gospels. But this one is repeated three times. I think it's very important that God wants us to get something here. So he has to say it three times, make sure it sinks in. So Isaiah 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. If you look here on the screen, I've got some pictures of this for you. There's a historical record carved by the Assyrians in stone themselves that tells what's going on in this time. So we just read verse 1, and the year is 701 B.C. This is 2,700 years ago. Sennacherib, this guy here, is the king of Assyria, what is now Iraq. And they are traveling west, and they come into Judah. Um, it, the God's people have split into two kingdoms by this time. There's Israel and Judah. Israel was wiped out years ago. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. And now in 701, Judah is under attack. Hezekiah is their king. And 21 years before this, this same country, Assyria, is a different king. Tiglath-Pileser III had come over from Assyria and attacked Israel and had successfully wiped Israel off the map. This obelisk, this stela here, this stone monument, is a depiction that the, is, the Assyrians carved to celebrate, to memorialize. This is like the, if you lived in Assyria, this is the Lincoln Memorial or the, the Vietnam Wall. Okay? This is their celebration of their victory over Israel in 722. The people were dragged off into slavery and they were never heard from again. They're called the Ten Lost Tribes. And they're not literally lost, but their identity was lost. They were spread all over the world and never heard from again. God wiped them off the face of the earth because of their idolatry. Because they would not obey him. They would not serve him. They would not be faithful. They never were. Israel didn't have one single godly king. And uh, Judah did. So they lasted a little bit longer. But 21 years before this story we're about to read... This is what happened. This guy here is Tiglath-Pileser III. This is a, a depiction of their gods. And this is the king of Israel on his face, kissing the ground in front of the Assyrian king in surrender and defeat. He was hauled off and uh, put into slavery, eventually executed. All his sons were castrated, and uh, they just completely enslaved the, the Israelite people. Here is a depiction of Israelite nobles getting standing in line, waiting to kiss the Assyrian king's feet to pronounce their obedience. What it, the story of this is in 2 Kings 6 and 7, and then later on in 2 Kings, the ultimate defeat. But these, the Assyrian army was brutal. You thought the Nazis were bad. The Assyrians were absolutely merciless. 
They were horrendous people. When they came and attacked a fortified city, meaning cities had walls around them that would be maybe 50 to 80 feet high, maybe 20 to 40 feet thick. So you couldn't just march in and take people hostage. They had to actually attack the city and siege it. So they'd camp around it and they'd either starve them out, not let anybody in or out, so no food, or they would try to tunnel under it. They might try catapults to knock it down. They might try a battering ram at the gate to bust it off. They might do what was called a siege ramp, which is build dirt up to the top, but that was kind of dangerous because that was involved getting thrown stones at and shot at with arrows and maybe boiling tar or you know whatever thrown down on you. So that siege ramps weren't all that popular. Uh, they were, it wasn't fun to build one. But the Assyrians had encamped around Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, in 722, and it, the starvation situation was so bad that people were eating bird dung and donkeys' heads, and two mothers even ate their own children. Now, you've got to be seriously starving to eat your own infant. It's really, really bad. Suffering and starvation beyond what we can imagine. And in their context, in their world, it was a very real danger. It's not history to them. They're living it. And now this same army, 21 years later, has shown up on the doorstep of Jerusalem. So, when we just read verse 1, it says that Sennacherib brought his army to Judah and he attacked all the fortified cities and conquered them. This is one of them. Lachish is a city 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. This is a recreation of what it might have looked like with the wall around it, but the next picture shows what's left after the Assyrians were there. There's nothing left. This is called a tell. It's just a hill of rubble covered with dirt. That's what's left after the attack. There's just some pictures here of this uh, almost 3,000-year-old hill of rocks that the Assyrians just knocked down the walls and went in and raped, pillaged, and plundered. All right, here is a stone carving that the Assyrians made of this attack on Lachish, which is the city they're coming from in this story. This shows archers shooting up to the top of the wall. These guys have slings with stones in them. To be a slinger in the Assyrian army, you had to be able to kill a man at 50 yards. To be able to hit him in the forehead at 50 yards. They were, these guys were deadly accurate. They were very, very good at what they did. So here's another picture of archers shooting up toward the top of the wall. You can see rocks being thrown down from the top of the wall. These are the, the people of Judah throw, trying to defend themselves. There's torches falling down, so they had fire being thrown on them. This is a siege tower, which was on wheels that they'd roll up to the wall and try to shoot down on the wall instead of shoot up from the ground because that wasn't very accurate. Uh, there's another siege tower, more... Uh, torches, more stones. There's ladders to try to get up the wall. Here's guys in armored chariots. This is kind of the cavalry of the day. These guys are behind these w uh, walls and they're shooting through a hole in a wagon that they can push up to the wall. Here's a guy falling off the wall right there off the top. There's another one. Uh, more archers. The guys with shields. Those are some of the stones that uh, have been collected at Lakish uh, that the slingers would use not slingshots like this but slings you know like david with goliath uh, there's some arrowheads and spear points that have been collected at the battle site this is sennacherib on his throne waiting to hear the good news of his victory at the city a picture of some assyrian archers there's a chariot that would have been used in battle these are three naked men impaled on poles 
this spear stuck in their gut and then out between their shoulder blades and they're hanging there and maybe they were dead, maybe they weren't when they got put on, but they didn't take them too long to die, I don't think. They would cut off ears, pull out tongues, fingernails, toenails, gouge out eyes, impale people. These They were absolutely merciless. They didn't fight a battle like this to take slaves. When they had to attack a city, it really ticked them off because we're wasting our time. We're going to win anyway. You might as well just give up. So if you actually fought back and resisted, they were going to annihilate you all. Because what they really wanted was for you to just give up. If you gave up, then they'd haul you off to Assyria and make you slaves. They'd probably kill the older men because they're kind of useless. The young men would have been made workers, and the women would have been sold off as wives. And uh, you know that, that's just a lot easier if you just give in. But if you make us fight, you, none of you will live. And so this is Lachish resisted. Lachish didn't open their gates, and so this is what happened to them. Here is a line of people um, waiting to get beheaded. This guy right here, I'm sorry about the lighting in the picture, but that guy is actually getting his head sliced off in the picture. This is an Assyrian soldier with a knife in this guy's throat. There's a pile of heads right there. That's how they used to count the dead men. They would pile up their heads, and then they'd go through the pile and count how many men they had actually killed. Here's two guys getting flayed, and I don't mean filleted, like cutting into meat. They're getting flayed, like skinned alive. So here's two Assyrian soldiers, and these guys are stretched out with ropes on the ground, face down, and they're stripped naked, and these guys have their knives up between the guy's legs, and they're slicing down their legs. They would skin them in one piece. And some point during that process, they would die. They were very well alive when it started. They, and then they would take the skin, and they would nail it to the side of the wall and tan it into leather, and then they'd put the leather on their shields and their helmets. So when they went to the next town, on the next attack, they would say, here's the guy that tried last time, why don't you just open the gate and let us in? There's just intimidation and terror like we don't even know. So this is Sennacherib from this story you're about to read. All of those pictures you just saw of battle are happening at Lachish, 30 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, as this conversation is happening, and Hezekiah knows what's going on. It's, it's his own city, okay? The, everybody knows the Assyrians are horrible. Keep that in mind. Watch the response. Isaiah 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now you can read that, and if you don't know what took them means... You can just read right on through that. Now you know what took them means. It's absolute terror. Wicked hell on earth. That's what that means. And he took every single one of them. And now he's at Jerusalem's gate. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which means his chief of staff, his top general, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. So this Rabshakeh dude, who's one of the commanders of the army, shows up with an army from Lachish, and he stands at the bottom of the wall of Jerusalem, and he's talking to these guys 80 feet up there somewhere, and he's like, hey, I'm here from Lachish. We're about done down there. You're next. You want to work out a deal before the rest of the army shows up? Okay. 
Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in whom you trust? I say, you speak of having plans and power of war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. Hezekiah had made a treaty with Pharaoh to defend him if, if Assyria ever showed up at his door. Uh, Pharaoh, he had paid Pharaoh to come and defend him. So the Egyptian army is going to maybe be on its way to help out. And the, the Rabshakeh says, you know what? It ain't going to work. We'll defeat them too. You're, you're, trusting in, you're, you're trusting in this treaty with Egypt, and it's hopeless. Uh, verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? It was Yahweh himself that said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and you to speak these words, but not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So he's speaking in Hebrew, the language that all the people speak. They said, Let's talk in Aramaic so that you don't scare the guys on the wall. And he looks up and he says, These guys need to hear what I have to say because they're going to be eating and drinking their own waste in just a minute. This is not a nice guy. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying that Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to your king. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and every one of you drink water from his own well, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the other nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? So here this, he's now saying, we've attacked this country and this country and this country, and we have won every time. Nobody's gods protect them. We are unstoppable. Don't let Hezekiah tell you the Lord will deliver you this time either, because your God is as powerless as everybody else's. That's what he just said. Verse 21. But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim told uh, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So he sends them to the prophet Isaiah and he says, tell Isaiah what this guy has said and ask him to consult the Lord for us. So verse 6. 
And Isaiah said to them, Thus says, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he will hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So then, beginning in verse 8, Sennacherib hears that the Ethiopians are on the march. They're coming north to join the battle. And so he decides he better go, because now he's got Israel and Egypt and Ethiopia all fighting together. Like, well, we're going to go. So he goes, he turns around to go home, but he sends a letter to Hezekiah saying principally the same things all through chapter 37. He just says, your God isn't going to save you. I'll be back. And when I come back, I'm going to skin you alive. So verse 14, and Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Yahweh, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Yahweh, you are God alone. Then Isaiah, the rest of the chapter, issues a prophecy against Sennacherib, where God basically says, how dare you challenge my people? How dare you say I'm not powerful enough? I will bring you down. And then in verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. 185,000 people die in the night in the Assyrian army. One of the translations is really funny. It says, when they woke up, they were dead. (laughs) So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon his son reigned in his place. So there's the story of God delivering Jerusalem under the threat of this horrendously, terribly, evilly, wicked army that is unstoppable. So it's a history story, and it's really interesting. It's kind of brutal, but it's cool. I really like history. You know, I was a history teacher, and I love thinking and and learning about this stuff. But God didn't mean it to be a history lesson. It applies to us right now. All right? So in the story, Israel, Judah, is the people of God. We are the people of God. Right? Sennacherib, the king, sends his messenger, the Rabshakeh guy, to speak threat and intimidation and terror. I say, that's the messengers of the devil in our own life, in our own heart, in our mind, in our circumstances. So I want to go through this story again, and I want to show you how it applies to you. It came to pass that the king of Assyria came up against all, all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. The devil is very successful. And you know a lot of his success stories. And he will convince you that he is always successful so 
when he comes against you, what naturally comes to mind is all the other people you know who've been in this situation who died, who failed, who their prayers didn't come true. God, these Syrians are a big army. The devil has a big army, and he's beat everybody. I can't think of anybody who's been successful, God. Nobody's been able to stop him. And he comes to your door in the doctor's office or over the phone, in your finances, with your kids, your marriage. The situation comes and all of a sudden there's the messenger of the devil telling you, you should be afraid. Be very, very afraid. I'm about to destroy you. How many of you got that phone call? Had that talk with the doctor? Got the financial news? And terror hits. And the devil's right there to just feed that. Your kids are going to die. Your business is going to fail. Your marriage is over. You're always going to be in pain. You have cancer, and cancer's big, and it's unstoppable, and you don't know anybody that's ever defeated it. Hello? Been there? So Hezekiah sends out these messengers and the Rabshakeh says, first of all, he talks to him about leaning on Egypt. In in scripture, Egypt means the world, the world systems. So the Rabshakeh first says, nothing that you depend on is going to work. Nothing in the world system is going to work for you. The doctors aren't going to be able to heal you. The counselor isn't going to be able to save your marriage. You have no answer. You have no ally. You have no friends. You are all alone. Come on now. You've heard this. You're stuck in secret sin and the devil says you are all alone and you can't talk to anybody because they'll all reject you. You will be ashamed and you will be rejected if you confess that. You're in a a troubled marriage or you're in a physical situation and the devil convinces you no one understands. You suffer more than anybody else. Let's get you over to self-pity real quick here. You've got it worse than everybody else. Nobody understands. You have no friends. Don't bother talking to anybody. Just be alone. Just you and me. We'll talk it over. I'll come to you in the middle of the night and I'll wake you up and I'll tell you everything you want to hear. Hello? So first he attacks their allies. Then, in verse 7, he, he says, If you say we're going to trust in God, the Rabshakeh says, Isn't it he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall only worship at this altar? Okay, let me explain what's going on here. It's been um, 500 years since Moses. Moses laid out worship in the tabernacle at the one altar in the holy place. Then Solomon built the temple. And that's been 300 years ago at this point. And over that time, what has happened is the Israelites, in living amongst the Canaanites, who always worshipped on mountaintops with uh, ritual sex and animal sacrifice and all these perversions, some of that rubbed off on Israel. Israel went whole hog, demonic, idolatrous, wickedness, worship. But Judah always stayed faithful to God, except that they mixed the two. They would worship God in Jerusalem in the temple at the holy place altar, but then they'd also worship Yahweh God on the mountaintops with these 
rituals that really were demonic and idolatrous, but they said they were worshiping Yahweh. Kind of like Christians that think they're Christians, but they're really doing it the world's way. And they've mixed in carnality and greed and laziness. and I don't know. I'm sure none of you do that. All right. So <clears throat> I worship God, but, you know, I do these other things too. Hezekiah had come along and had purified Judah. He had demolished all of the worship places on all the high mountains and hilltops, and he had desecrated the, the altars there, and he said, we only worship in Jerusalem. Well, that was what God wanted. But the Rabshakeh comes, and just this is just Satan's strategy. He always asks questions. He doesn't come out and just speak outright blasphemy because we would reject that. No, that's not right. But he asks Eve, did God really say? Right? And so the the Rabshakeh here, it's just satanically sly. He doesn't say outright blasphemy against God, but he's, he just, if I can just introduce doubt, if I can just introduce fear that maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe God isn't happy. That's why I got diabetes. God isn't happy. I haven't been parenting God's way. That's why my kids did that. God isn't pleased, so I'm cursed. A very quick response in our hearts to wonder if this bad thing is happening because God is mad at us. Maybe I haven't done it right. So he says in verse 10, Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? It was Yahweh himself who told me go up against that land. This demonized, idol-worshiping Assyrian comes and says, God told me to come up and destroy you. You're in the doctor's office and you hear the word cancer. Oh no. What have I done wrong? Why did God let this happen? This must be God's will. Well, I guess I have a lesson to learn. We blame God. Because the enemy says, God's on my side. God is the reason this is happening. He says in verse 11, the guys say, please don't speak in Hebrew or the guys on the wall can hear it. Let's speak in Aramaic, which was the diplomatic tongue of negotiations that they all spoke. And the guy says, I didn't come to tell you this. I came to scare them because in a few days I'm going to feed them their own shit. And they, you need to be scared to death. I'm coming and we're going to pull your fingernails out and we're going to skin you alive. I'm going to stick you on poles and lift you up in the air. I'm going to castrate your sons and rape your daughters. Give in now. Fear speaks your language. I said fear speaks your language. You're laying awake in bed at night and all of a sudden, oh no, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Oh no. This terrible thing is going to happen, and that terrible thing is going to happen, and what if my kids die, and what if, what if, what if, what if? The devil knows exactly what you're afraid of, and that is what he pokes. And he speaks your language. Something you're afraid of, I'm not afraid of. Something I'm afraid of, you're not. He speaks a language that you understand. And he comes and he speaks your language to scare you to death. And he paints a very bad picture and guess what 
it's true. They have done this in every other place. And you do know people that have suffered with whatever you're suffering. You do know people who have marriages have failed and divorced and kids that walked away from the Lord and didn't return and people who died of cancer. And there's not something to blow off. But fear comes and paints a terrible picture. This is going to happen to you too. You're always going to be in this pain. You're never going to get healed. And you are going to be suffering so miserably that you want to die. Oh, you're right. I probably should. So, since I have painted this horrendous picture, don't listen to Hezekiah. It says it three times. Do not listen to Hezekiah. God will not be there for you. What's that? Don't listen to your leader. Ignore Mitch. You pay him to preach happy, faithful sermons. Of course he's going to try to pump you up on Sunday, but it really isn't true that God comes through every time. Ignore Mitch. That's his job. You know the real truth, which is I'm going to come in and ruin your life. Do not listen to Hezekiah. He can't save you. And don't believe him that God will save you. Don't listen to your husband. He doesn't know what he's doing. Don't follow your leader. You are out there on your own. You have no covering. You have no authorities in your life. No one cares about you. You are on your own. And hey, let's make a deal. Verse 16. Make peace with me. Buy a present and come out to me and every one of you will eat from his own vine, everyone from his own fig tree. You will drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a place like your own land. It's it's similar. You know, if you know about Israel and you know about Iraq, they're not similar. Iraq is a sand pile. Israel is fertile, green farmland. I'll take you to a land like your own. You know what? If you just surrender to me, I'll take care of you. You can go home and live in peace. You have no fear of attack. Eat your own grapes and your own figs. Drink your own water. In a few months, I'll be back, and we'll relocate you. We'll just gently pack your U-Haul, and we'll no harm done. We'll just move you off to uh, Assyria, and it's similar. We'll take care of you. We'll provide free health care. We'll give you free cell phones. It just, you know, we'll just provide jobs for you and a paycheck in the mail every week. And you just, you won't even notice the difference between your life before and after, except that I'm your dictator. And we'll just be at peace. You just sell me your freedom and everything will be all right. It's a land similar to where you live. Trust me, I'll take care of you. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, the gods of Shepharvaim? Indeed, did they deliver Samaria from my hand? Now, Samaria is the capital of Israel that was attacked 21 years earlier. Samaria is, is, is Judah's sister. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. They're all the Israelites, God's people. Now, this is a really low blow. Really low blow. God didn't come through for that person. That fellow Christian, you know, God's people up north, he didn't save them. You know those 18 people you can think of who died? You're going to die too. You know all those failed marriages, you know? Yours is 
up a creek. You know all those people whose kids and grandkids aren't walking with the Lord? Yours are on the highway to hell too. God didn't come through for them. You know that lady that's been praying for like 20 years for her husband to get saved? Yours is never, ever getting saved because God didn't come through for her. He ain't going to come through for you either. You're never getting pregnant. If you do, I'm going to take it in miscarriage. And you know three people like that. You know they've been through all the procedures and she can't get pregnant. You ain't getting it either. And that's as low below as it gets. Did God come through for Samaria? No, he didn't. And he will not save you. But they did not answer him a word. Do not get in an argument with the devil. Don't take his bait. I said, don't take his bait. Don't lay there and think for two hours, sweating and breathing hard in bed at night. He can paint a really, really bad picture. Get rid of it. Do not answer him a word. They went and told Hezekiah. They ripped their clothes, which is a sign of extreme mourning. He poured ashes and sackcloth on himself, and he went to the house of the Lord. There's your instruction. Go to God. You, disaster knocks on your door. This is truly real bad disaster. This is not something to laugh off. Oh yeah, God will take care of it. No, <laughs> it's really, really bad. Go to the house of God and work it out with God. They consulted the prophet. Isaiah says, don't be afraid of his words. Surely I will send the spirit upon him and he will hear a rumor. The guy's a wimp. He's full of fear himself. God says, all I have to do is spread a little gossip that there's another army coming and he will tuck tail and run. He can, I'll huff and puff and blow your house down, but you know what, I'll just whisper a little rumor in his ear and he will run. And he does. But even, this is so devilish, even as he is retreating, he is leaving and he's still breathing out fiery threats. I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you down. You're not safe. You got healed at the conference last night, but I'm coming back tomorrow. Yeah, you've had three months of peace in your marriage, but you just wait. Don't you ever relax. Don't you ever let your guard down because I'm big and I'm scary. Yeah, you got freedom from that sin, but I will be back. It's such a bunch of hot air. Even as he is retreating, he is running away scared and he's still trying to talk big. I'm going to come back and I'm going to skin you alive. So he sends that letter to Hezekiah and Hezekiah takes it into the temple of the Lord and he spreads it out before God. This is key. He spreads out the threats before God and he says, God, it is true. They have done this everywhere else. Too many people think faith is positive confession and denying the problem. It's okay to be honest with God and yourself. I'm in trouble here. This is a big enemy. And I can't defeat this without you, God. That's what Hezekiah did. He lays it out before the Lord and he says, God, I know you're the only real God and I know why the rest of these failed is because they were serving false gods. I know you are the real God. What are you going to do about this? I mean, Hezekiah lays it out. God, they have blasphemed you. Your name is at stake here, God. It's the way Moses always went to God, too. Your name, God. It's not about us. 
It's God, your name has to be glorified. Your name cannot be blasphemed. And God says, don't worry about it. He's going to die in a few days. And he did. 185,000 people die in their sleep overnight. Ironically, very similar to what happened in Samaria about 30 years before this, they hear a noise in the middle of the night and all run off naked, leaving their armor, their food, their weapons, their clothing, their gold, all the loot from all these cities they had taken. And that's when the lepers went out into this camp and the whole city comes out and the guy gets trampled in the gates because of the mob going out to get food. God can change the situation overnight. Overnight. 185,000 people dead in their sleep. Sennacherib returned to Assyria and stayed there. He went back to Nineveh, which was his fortress, his capital city, and he stayed there. He didn't dare come back and mess with the people of God. He met his match. It's interesting, we have all those pictures of the destruction of Samaria and Lachish. The Assyrians didn't see fit to make a memorial to their attack on Jerusalem. <laughs> There's no record of it. <laughs> they didn't want to memorialize 185,000 of their own people dying. It's great. Do not negotiate with the devil. He's very scary. Sickness, marriage problems, and kid problems, and financial problems, and all that's very real and scary. It's not a sin to be feel scared. It is a sin to take action on fear. Well, God might not come through, so I better do this. I better make a deal. I better go do this over here out of fear rather than trust God to rescue me. You hear me? Do not take action out of fear that God might not come through. Trust your God to be your Savior. What is fantastic about the word of Isaiah in this story is when they take him, the, the message, like, this guy out there is saying all this stuff, and you know what's going on at Lachish, they're getting skinned alive, and it's terrible. And Isaiah basically says, the word of the Lord is, he's just talking. We are behind a 40-foot thick wall. And he's down there at the bottom of it saying, I'm going to come in there and kill you. And you're scared? You guys are behind a very stout wall. And nothing bad has happened yet. Why are you scared? It's all words. Come on now, but you went to the doctor's office and you heard some really bad words. But nothing bad has happened yet. Doctors get paid to paint worst case scenarios, just so you know. Right? Liability laws are such that they have to tell you it's the worst. Right? Well, it might be this, it might be this, it's probably all five, I'm going to be dead next month. Nothing bad has happened yet. How many times have you balanced your checkbook and panicked? And then at the end of the month, you still had money. And the credit card was indeed actually paid off, and nothing bad actually ever happened. It was just scary for a week or two. You're behind a big wall. The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are saved. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are saved. 
you got a big wall, and the devil likes to huff and puff and make big threats. But until something bad actually happens, don't be panicking. Sometimes bad things do happen, and we take those to the Lord. But really, in this story, nothing ever happened. Nothing. It just looked like it might. Oh, no! We might be short this month. Oh, no! I might get sick. Oh, no! Something might happen to the kids. Why waste time worrying about what might happen? The devil will oblige you in that if that's what you want to be afraid of. He'll come talk to you about it. He'll tell you all about what's going to happen. But Isaiah says, do not listen to him. Hezekiah said, don't answer him back. Isaiah says, don't even listen. It's nothing. I will destroy him before he has a chance to touch you. Amen? Yeah. All right. Do not negotiate with the devil. Don't take action out of fear and realize that most of what he does is blowing hot air. Trying to look big and scary, but really it's him that's scared of the Lord. Amen? Prayer team, you want to come on up if you're scheduled for this morning?